Good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. We have the privilege of learning and reading Parsha Shlach together. I want to thank our Parsha series sponsors for the year, our dear friends, Becky and Avi Katz and family, in loving memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, David Ben Menachem Manish. This morning's Parsha class is also sponsored by Alex and Debbie Marcus on the occasion of the first year site of Rabbi Jonathan Brown and Rabbi Yonatan Moshe Ben Avram, Debbie's father's Neshama Shadav and Aliyah. And it is also co-sponsored by Jennifer and Dr. Ronnie Herman in memory of Sarat Cyril Bas Yidl Price, courageous woman who never lost her emuna, despite uh, having to endure the Holocaust, and Oma, who was privileged to live and see five generations, her neshama should have an aliyah as well. Thank you to all of our sponsors. If you'd like to sponsor a future shear, please email lee at brsonline.org, l-e-e at brsonline.org. As I said this week, we have the privilege of learning Parsha's Shlach, Page 798 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. And this is an action-packed parsha. Unfortunately, it is in a string of parshas that do not reflect well on Klal Yisrael, on the Jewish people. The Jewish people at this stage are in their adolescence, growing pains. They are emerging and trying to mature as a people. From Sefer Bracious, a family. Shemos, we emerge as a nation. Vayikra, we have our sacred charge, the Kohanim, Torah's Kohanim. And here in Bamidbar, as we are journeying through the desert, which should have been a direct route into the land of Israel, we're also on, as much as we are a physical geographic journey, we are on a metaphysical spiritual journey of self-discovery. The people are experiencing their um, adolescence and growing into themselves. As uh, we've been doing all this year, we're going to tap into the Ishtamid, the beautiful insights of Rav Druk. Last week when Rav Druk was in Boca, he gave me a new copy of his uh, Sefer Ishtamid on Bamidbar, just published now, Tavshin Pei Aleph, a new expanded edition that has more Divrei Torah, and will uh, weave together Divrei Torah from all over, but including many from the Ishtamid. So he says the following, The beginning of our parsha, Shlach Lecha Anashim, V'yasuru Oseretz Kanan Asha'anin Osein Levnei Yisrael, Ish Echad Ish Echad Lemate Avosav Tishlachu, our Pasha begins where the Torah tells us, Hashem spoke to Moshe and He said, send forth men and let them investigate the land that I'm giving to the Jewish people. One man from each of his father's tribe, everyone a leader among them. And Rashi here tells us, Rashi uh, begins and describes, Shlach lecha l'datcha. Who is the one who initiated? Who is the driver of this uh, episode of the sending of the spies? Is this Hashem's will? Is He the one who wants it? Is this the will of the people? Is Moshe instigating? Why? Why do they send ahead advanced spies to investigate the land? So Rashi says, Shlach lecha, send for you, God tells Moshe. L'da'atcha, according to your opinion. Ani eini mitzava lecha. I, says God, I'm not commanding you. In says Shlach, if you want to, send. L'fishabo Yisrael va'amru, nishlachan Hashem lefanenu. So the people approached Moshe and they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're going to another land? We got to get passports? We got to get visas? We got to pack? It's a different uh, language, different culture, different electricity, different plugs, transformers? Whoa. We need to send people ahead. We need scouts. They need to investigate. Because Baruch checks with Moshe. So Rashi quotes this back and forth here. Who instigated? Who initiated? What is the reason? So writes Rav Juk, Was this legitimate? Was this considered to be a virtuous request? Or not? Was this a form of doubting the Rebona Shalom? Did they in fact express rebelliousness? Were they doubting the Almighty or were they doing something worthy? Was it appropriate and correct? Mitzadachar, on the one hand, it says, Shlach lachan Hashem v'yasur Eretz Kenan. And Rashi says, Ladatcha, that God says, this is not for me, I'm not initiating, I don't want, I'm not commanding it, it's for you. It's a concession. Now, if it was entirely wrong, if it was an act of rebelliousness, if it was challenging Hashem, then why didn't HaKadosh Baruch Hu squash it? Why didn't he nix it? Why didn't he say, not I'm doing it for you, but don't do it at all. You don't belong, trust me, we're going in, nothing more to talk about. 
Mitzat Sheni, on the other hand, Kasher Mochich Moshe Rabbeinu Yisrael, at the beginning of Sefer Dvarim, when Moshe offers his soliloquies, monologue, he recounts all of Jewish history until that point, and he rebukes them for this episode. He says, And Rashi says, You all came upon me with chaos, a stampede. You all came upon me aggressively. You bullied me. There was another gathering which was done correctly. Everyone was orderly, organized, dignified. But this, when you initiated, says Moshe to the people, when you approached me and you initiated, let's send spies, let's send scouts, let's investigate, you didn't come to me calmly and orderly and with dignity. You came by Tikravun Birbuvia, Yuladim Dochimus Askim, Skin Dochimus Arashim. There was pushing and shoving, there was aggressiveness and bullying. You came upon me with confrontationally. So, which is it? Which is it? Is this something that Akkadish Baruch himself can get on board with? Did he endorse it? And even if he didn't initiate it, was he okay with it? Seems to be from our Pasha. Shlach Lecha. True, it's Lecha for you. But God didn't say, don't do it. On the other hand, Moshe Rabbeinu rebukes the people. And he said, what a terrible idea. You bullied me. You pressured me. You came upon me in a stampede. You pushed me and shoving. <laughs> but then Moshe says, Then Moshe says, I thought it was a good idea. So it sounds like he thought it was a good idea. So which is it? Is it a good idea? Is it a bad idea? What is the reality? What is the reality over here? I think I keep losing everybody. The internet looks like it's going in and out. For those who are watching. But we're going to try nonetheless to continue. Really, Rav Druk suggests the sending of scouts of spies to investigate the land was in fact a good idea. And it was required. It was appropriate. Just like later, if it was such a bad idea, why does Yehoshua emulate? Why does Yehoshua, in the beginning of the book of Yehoshua, he too identifies, not 12, but 2, and he sends them into Israel to investigate. And if it was such a bad idea, with such a disastrous result, why did Yehoshua emulate? Why did he imitate? So says Rav Chuk, so what went wrong? If the initial idea, if the drive to send investigative scouts was good, what went wrong? The answer is, everything follows the start, the beginning. And look at the way it was initiated. Children were pushing the elders, and the elders were being knocked over. And you see, when something begins, even a good idea, even a noble goal, but when it begins with an ignoble way, then ultimately it f- falls flat. Everything follows the start, the beginning. And you see, ultimately what results is a disaster. Ultimately what results is a catastrophe. Ultimately what results is 40 years of wandering in the desert and a Bechila Doros. That our Tishabav today, we sit on the floor, we mourn, we cry, that until this very day we are suffering the consequences of that horrific mission, that failed mission. Why did it fail? Was it a bad idea to begin with? No. You see that from the fact that Yeshua imitates and emulates it. Why did it fail? Because of the way it started. It started with aggressiveness. It started with bullying. It started with elbowing, pushing, and shoving. It started with disrespect and disregard. It started with, it started with a lack of dignity. Rabbi Yeruchim, the Vavitz of the Mir, explains, says Rav Druk, the mistake did not begin when they came back and gave the negative report. Every time we make a mistake, every time we fail, we give in to the voice of self-sabotage. Every time we choose poorly, the moment of the poor choice is not when it began. There was a setup. There was a build-up. It happened even earlier. The Yitzhahara slowly, very incrementally, very per, the, perniciously, the Yetzirah pushes us, it goads us, slowly it seduces us, and little by little we cross our own boundaries. Little by little we violate 
our own red lines, until we find ourselves on the other side, until we find ourselves having made a big mistake. And that's what you see here as well. It began in a very low level. And even though the goal was a good goal, and even though the mission was not inherently bad, and even though the idea was not wrong, and you see that from the fact that Yeshua imitates it, but the way they went about it, the pushing, the shoving, I, I think this is a partial perspective for today, because, unfortunately, Klai Yisrael has suffered several tragedies this year, which were the result of aggressive pushing, shoving, irresponsible, failed safety, and so on. And we need to learn from it. You could be pursuing the most holy activity. You could be trying to climb the mountain to get close to Hashem. You could be trying to climb the bleachers in order to get close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You could have the most lofty goal and mission. But if you do it with disregard for safety, for dignity, for honor, even if it's the most noble goal, but it's an innoble uh, means to achieve it, then it results in disaster. It results in catastrophe. It was true going all the way back to the Chaita Maraglim, and it remains true until this very day. Yisod Nosav Yeshlomar says Rav Druk, Kasher Am Moshe When we crowded Moshe, when you come across a leader, and you come across with pushing and shoving and aggressiveness, When you're so excited and enthusiastic, when you're so passionate with what you want to do, that you're not paying attention to what you're doing and how you're doing it, even if it's a very holy, ambitious aspiration, in Ruchnis, you don't achieve lasting, transformational change in spirituality through unbridled passion. Yes, you have to have a fire burning. Yes, you have to be energized and enthusiastic. But if it's not tempered, if it's not careful, if it's not done safely, then it will implode and then it collapse. You see this with Nadav Aviyu, when they brought their carbon. They weren't careful, they weren't judicious and thoughtful in what they were doing and how they were doing it. And if they were commanded to be doing it, they just got filled with this passion, this islavus, and they pursued it recklessly and it ended in catastrophe. And so the Chet Maraglam, it ends in catastrophe. Nadav Aviyu, it ended in catastrophe. Rav Druk quotes the story that Rav Chaim Velazhner wanted to open the yeshiva in Velazhner. He came to his Rebbe, the Gra, the Vilna Gon. And he asked him whether he should open the yeshiva or not. And the Gra said, don't open the yeshiva. Several days later, months later, weeks later, he came back to the Gra. And he wanted again to find out if he should open the yeshiva. And he wanted a bracha to open the yeshiva. And this time the Gra agreed, he acquiesced. And wondered of Chaim Velazhner, what was different? What changed? And so the Gura explained, The first time that you came to explore, the key, first time that you came to ask whether you should open the yeshiva, I saw that you were entirely, you were overwhelmed with passion, excitement. You weren't thinking. You weren't strategic. You weren't being careful. You weren't being thoughtful, intentional. That's not the way to open the yeshiva. But now I see that you're approaching opening the yeshiva strategically, thoughtfully, mindfully, with dignity, and that is the proper way to do it. So it says Rav Druk, was it right? Was it wrong? Good idea, bad idea? The answer is yes to all the above. There was nothing inherently wrong with the idea of sending those ahead to see the land. However, the way they went about it, you cannot, very, very important lesson, that even when we have Noble goals, we have to pursue them with noble means. We have to be dignified and careful and pay attention to safety, to security, to health. In the name of Ruchnius, in the name of drawing close to Hashem, you can't have a disregard and act recklessly. Adarabah, the opposite. In the name of drawing close to Hashem is a time that we need even more self-control, even more strategic thinking, even more boundaries and safety measures. And you see that was the mistake Chetam Maraglim, and it was the mistake of Nadav Aviyu, and it was the mistake the first time that Rav Chaim Velazhner came to open the yeshiva before the Ribbono Shalom had him open it the right way. But has a different approach of why we wanted to enter the land. Was it a good idea, a bad idea, inherently right, inherently wrong? And says the Rav, why was it necessary to send spies at all? What were they supposed to do? What report did Moshe expect from them? And the report they brought back was actually the truth. Why were they so severely punished? Right? Spoiler alert, let's skip ahead. We know that they go 40 days, they investigate, they come back, they give a negative report, Yeshua and Kalev, they uh, act differently, we'll study and unpack exactly their approach momentarily, 
And of course, the people accepted the negative report. They cried all night. And God said, you cried for nothing? I'll give you a reason to cry. And again, Tisha B'Av was established the ninth of Av, the night of that crying, in perpetuity as an inauspicious date on our calendar. Terrible calamities have happened to our people throughout the centuries and millennia on that day. But we're going to look further at this also. What did they do wrong when they came back and they reported? They described what they saw with their eyes. They didn't really give such a judgment. They used the word Ephes, we'll see. But what did they do so wrong? So what did Moshe expect from them? How did they fail and what did they do so wrong? And what were they meant to do? Says the Rav, the spy's mission was not to spy Luragel, but rather Lasuras arts, to scout the land. Luragel means spying to identify the military weak spots in the defense system of a potential enemy. Yosef accuses his brothers of being spies. Miraglamatem, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land, says the Pasuk. Nothing of that sort was entrusted to these 12 spies. Their assignment spelled out by Moshe was to search, to explore, to scout. It wasn't military intelligence. It was a study mission. They were to see the land, and after their return, they were to submit a number of reports. One was a demographic report. Are the people strong or weak? Few or many. The other was an agricultural study. Is the soil rich or poor? Moshe needed no military intelligence when the Jews left Mitzrayim. He needed none here. He knew very well the entry to the land of Israel would be accompanied by miracles, as was Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. There was no need to send spies to collect intelligence. Instead, Moshe acted in accordance with the principle that one must not propose to and let alone wed a woman he does not know, no matter how highly recommended. It's a very beautiful insight of the Rav. When Moshe sent the Meraglim, the spies, it wasn't to investigate or to collect intelligence. It wasn't intelligence gathering. We trusted Hashem to take us out of Mitzrayim. This was a generation that saw 10 plagues, a splitting of a sea. All that was good enough for them to emancipate and to liberate them. Now they lost their faith that the same Ribbonu Shalom, the same Almighty, the same God who could bring 10 plagues, who could intervene and intercede with nature, who can make the sea split, that the same God would not be able to bring them into the land of Israel. That was not the goal. That was not the mission. That was not the purpose. So what was it? Says Rav Soloveitchik, the goal was not intelligence gathering. It was not to develop a military strategy. That was in the hands of Hashem. They had faith. They had trust. They knew Hashem would get it right. So what was it for? So we have a halacha. The Gemara Kedushin Daf Mem tells us, Mem Aleph, that before a man can betroth, before he can be Mekadesh and Isha, a woman, he has to see her. Why? Because he might come to violate. We have to know this chemistry. Chemistry. We have to know that there's attraction. You're not allowed to get married. It doesn't matter how much the shadchan is recommended. It doesn't matter how impressive her resume or profile. It doesn't matter how photoshopped or wonderful her picture, which should never even be on the resume or the profile. It doesn't matter how many endorsements and how much the references say she is the most perfect thing that ever lived. A man still needs to see the woman before he marries because he may violate Vahaftalorecha Kamocha. Pasik tells us the Torah tells us that Yitzchak um, and the servant told Yitzchak all the things he had done, and Yitzchak La'ala, he brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and he took Rivka to become his wife. Notwithstanding the servant's portrayal of Rivka's wisdom, intelligence, hospitality, kindness, Yitzchak didn't take her for a wife immediately. As Rashi tells us, Yitzchak brought her into Sarah's tent before marrying her to see if she was a worthy successor to Sarah. Would she restore the glory and the pristine beauty of Sarah's tent? Yitzchak waited to see if the same cloud would return, if the yeast and the dough would rise, if the candle would be relit. When he saw it all returned, he married Rivka. Eliezer was trustworthy, devoted, loyal. Eliezer was a good shadchan. But Yitzchak did not marry Rivka until he became convinced she was the equal of Sarah. Marriage is not an ordinary transaction. It is not just a civil commitment or a mundane partnership. It is an existential commitment, a covenantal union. Two lonely people join their souls. Two strangers decide to unite their destinies, to share the same fate, to suffer and rejoice together, to travel, to pay the toll of the road jointly. When one takes on such an all-inclusive, all-encompassing commitment, one cannot trust anybody, no matter how loyal and trustworthy the other person might be. Because of the nature of marriage, it's so intimate. It is something so transcendent. It is something so core to our identity. It's two halves becoming a whole. We don't rely on a shadchan. You don't rely on references. You don't rely on the report of others. We have to go investigate. We have to go see. We have to go believe. We have to go learn ourselves. 
The Jews at this time were ready to march to the Promised Land. The entry into the land of Israel, we have to understand, was not just a physical act of crossing the Yarde and the Jordan River. It was a marriage between a people and a land, a union of the rocky hills and the sandy trails with the people returning to its origin. The entry signified the destiny of a people united with the destiny of a land. Consequently, the people could not just enter the land without meeting it first. They knew it was a land of milk and honey, but they had to experience it to get acquainted with it before they became united. That is why a short time before they planned entry into the Promised Land, Moshe sent explorers to study the land. Not to gather intelligence data, which was completely unnecessary. He sent the would-be groom to meet and see the would-be bride. What a beautiful insight. It's a beautiful insight halachically, and it's a beautiful explanation of what's going on in the psukim. But I think it's also a very, very beautiful and romantic description of the relationship of Klal Yisrael with Eretz Yisrael. This is a singular relationship. It is one and one only, unlike any other. This is a unique, distinct relationship. And before we entered into it, we had to know what we were getting into. Not from a military intelligence gathering perspective, from the perspective of falling in love, of courtship, of curiosity, of going to sea, of contributing to that chemistry and to the attraction that we were meant to have. So again, in the Rav's interpretation, and by the way, this carries on until this very day, we don't have time now. I once gave a talk, it may be online, but I could share the source sheets with anyone. You know, when, when in one of the Zionist Congresses, when Herzl proposed moving or beginning the land, the state of Israel in Uganda, not in the land of Israel, ironically, the Mizrahi, the religious Zionists, voted in favor. They thought it was an excellent stepping stone to getting ultimately to Am Yisrael, Torah Yisrael, and Eretz Yisrael. It would be a beginning. But ironically, it was the secular Zionists who voted it down and who were against it. And Baruch Hashem, the plan failed. But why? Why is that a bad thing? Why can't the Jews have a homeland somewhere else? Some mistakenly, tragically, horrifically mistakenly think that if only the Jews would give up on the land of Israel and stop fighting with Palestinians, with Arabs, and we would agree just to live in the five towns in Tinek and Boca and LA and be comfortable where we are, then they'll love us, then they'll accept us. We see that anti-Semitism has nothing to do with Israel. Even those who distance themselves from Israel are subject and targets of anti-Semitism. One has nothing to do with the other. But why does it have to be in the land of Israel? What is that unique, special relationship? So here the Rav describes very beautifully. It's a love affair. It's romantic. It's a marriage that we have with the land. It's not a land like any other. There are no mitzvahs hatzliyos bars. There is no mitzvah that depends on the earth and the soil in Uganda or in Boca or in anywhere else. That's unique, it's distinct, it's singular, it's exclusive to the land of Israel. It's a very, very special relationship. There's a lot more to say another time, but I love the Rav's description here, that the purpose and the goal of the Meraglim was not to gather intelligence, but it was to promote the relationship, the chemistry, the attraction, the romance, the energy between the Jewish people and the land that we were going to marry and marry in perpetuity. Even for 2,000 years when we were exiled and driven from that land, we longed to be reunited. We longed to be reconciled. We longed to come together once again. We didn't divorce the land. We didn't find new land. But all we did is long and daven and sacrifice to be able to come back together and to be with the same land again. It's a very, very beautiful description. So the goal of the Meraglim was a noble goal, at least in the Rav's interpretation. But according to Rav Druk, it was a very innoble mechanism or manner pushing and shoving and crossing boundaries of safety and danger and in the name of even the most spiritual experience or elevation, we cannot ever cross those boundaries. We're skipping right ahead. Moshe Davins for Yoshua, that it be a successful mission. We're going to come back to that. And the spies report. Yud Gimel Lamed Beis. Pasuk says the following. What happens, the, the, um, the spies come back and they report. We've come to the land. We're going to come back to it in a moment. What did they say that was so wrong? They're saying something flattering. They're saying something positive. Isn't that good? Isn't that what they were meant to do? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. This is its fruit. Ephes. That might be the problem. However, Ephes. But, people who dwell there, they're very powerful. We, the people there, the cities are fortified. The cities are great. They have a stronghold. And the offspring of the giants who live there. They're reporting. What did they say that was so wrong? What did they say that wasn't accurate? In fact, they're not even giving a judgment here. So far, they haven't said we can't go. 
all they're doing is reporting, and it seems that all they're reporting are facts. First, they begin with something positive, flattering. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. This is its fruit. Look at it. It's enormous, succulent. It's delicious, sweet. However, FS, is that where they went wrong? The FS? However, but then again, the however is continuing to report data, facts, but the reporting is accurate and true. Cities are fortified. The people are enormous. They're very strong. And all of a sudden, Yosh, uh, Kalev interrupts. Vayahas Kalev el Moshe. Vayomer He says, He says, let's go up. We've got to go up. Let's climb up. Let's climb up. And, and we can conquer. So he's the one who instigates. Now the rest of the spies respond to him. We can't. Only now, after Kalev interrupts, is it when they weigh in and say, however, we can't. So what did they do so wrong? What did they do so wrong? What's going on? And Kalev's alona Aleh is somewhat peculiar. Alona Aleh. He doesn't rebut anything they say. He doesn't offer a counter-argument to what they're saying. He doesn't challenge their facts. He just says, enough, quiet, still. let's go. Everybody pack your bags. God said we're going. We're going. What's really going on here? So Rashi tells us that Kalev was being very strategic. One can argue manipulative. Kalev says the following. Vayas Kalev hishtik eskulam. He silenced them all. They're reporting on what's going on. And he says, sha, sha, sha. Now, what does it mean? El Moshe. He silenced them, not to himself. Kalev doesn't interrupt. Look at the Pasuk. Page 802 in the Yorts, Stone Chumash, chapter 13, verse 30. Perak Yigimel, Pasuk Lamed. Vayahas Kalev esa'am. He silences them. El Moshe. Why does he silence them? What's his motivation in silencing them? To whom does he silence them? El Moshe. Says Rashi. What does it mean he silences them, El Moshe? L'shmo mashi daber Moshe. Let's see what Moshe has to say. Tzavach v'amar, v'chizu bilvar asa lo ben Amram, ha-shamea ha-savar shebo l'sapa b'gnuso, u-mitoch shei b'libam al-Moshe b'shvil divar emaraglim, shosku kulum l'shmo g'nuso. Amar v'alokar lano asayam, v'hoid lano asaman, v'higiz lano asaslav. So Kalev does something brilliant here. Kalev, internet troubles, again. Kalev, See if it comes back. Recording the audio, but the video we lost. Kalev does something brilliant. He silences them and brings them back to Moshe. El Moshe, why? They think that he's silencing them to hear Moshe because he's going to be accusatory to Moshe. He's going to say to Moshe, he's going to be accusatory to Moshe. If you're sticking with us in the video, thank you. I'm not sure why we're having Wi-Fi internet problems today, but thank you. If the, he silences thinking he's going to expose Moshe, he's going to challenge Moshe, that Kalev is part of the same agenda as the rest of the Miraglim. Hashomea, those who were listening thought, the Sapper Bignuso. He's silencing them and saying, let's listen to Moshe. Hey Moshe, is this your plan? To get us slaughtered? To get us murdered when the land of Israel? What's your plan here? To get us wiped out? But that wasn't the reason. He really silenced them so he could say the alone Allah. He really silenced them to remind them everything that Hashem had done for them and the promise that he was going to continue to do it yet again. It's a beautiful Hasidish insight here. Rav Yechil Michal of Ashtravtza, who says the following. Rashi says, Alona Allah. Look at Rashi, Alona Allah. What did Kali say? Alona Allah, we can go up. We can go up, not just Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael, not just let's go up, Nefesh B'Nefesh, to Israel, but let's go all the way. Let's go all the way, not just geographically, not just physically, let's go all the way to heaven. Let's make ladders and climb. Let's succeed in all that we are doing. So says Rav Yechiel Mechel if a person wants to be a Ben Aliyah, a Bas Aliyah, you want to be somebody who aspires to grow. You want to be a growth-oriented person, a person who's improved, who is not living the same year over and over again and calling it a life, but is constantly improving and progressing and growing. If somebody says, skip steps, let's just run up those stairs and skip steps, skip the rungs on the ladder, just climb two, three at a time. Say, no, we reveal our nakedness. The Torah tells us, if you run up the ramp, you reveal your nakedness. Kim 
כמו כשם שעולם בסולם, שלב אחרי שלב. זוהי הדרך הראוי ללעלוס בבייס השם. The proper way to climb and to get close to Hashem. When it comes to Torah, when it comes to mitzvahs, when it comes to midos, if we're trying to improve our character, if we're trying to improve our behavior, our performance, if we're trying to live our better or best selves, it doesn't come by trying to uh, expedite. It doesn't come from trying to fast pass. You can't skip steps slowly, incrementally, methodically. person has to go la'at, la'at. And perhaps you see that here, Alona ale Rashi. When you want to climb all the way to the Shamayim, the image we has is the image we have of a sulam, of a ladder. You have to go rung by rung. You have to climb slowly, slowly. Says Rabbi Michal of Ostrovtsa. Rabbi Soloveitchik now says, what does it mean Alona ale? Kali was the only one who saw things in their right perspective. What does he mean Alona ale? So. Sorry, alone ale, Rabbi Soloveitchik. In the same fashion that he was just describing, here it is. We can surely go up. Chazal said three grants have bestowed upon the Jewish people. Torah, the land of Israel, and the world to come. But the Jew has to acquire all of them through Yisur and through suffering. It's going on brachos dafhei. Hashem rewards a person in accordance with our effort. A person appreciates something in proportion to the level of hardship we have to undergo. To create the eternal bond between spiritual values and the Jew, we have to work for it, to experience the pain. Holiness has one source, sacrifice. Holiness and sacrifice, both literally and figuratively, are fundamentally the same concept. Holiness can only be created through self-sacrifice, pain, effort, and exertion. If a person does not anticipate and struggle, holiness cannot come into being. We don't stumble or trip upon holiness. Holiness doesn't just happen on its own. Holiness is the result of effort, of toil, of sacrifice. That, is the, that the existence of the state of Israel is a miracle, writes the Rav, is beyond doubt. At the same time, it's a miracle that came at great cost. At Israel's very inception, on the first night of the state of Israel's existence, bombs were dropped on Tel Aviv. Subsequently, in the years since it has become into being, the relationship of world jury to the state of Israel has been like the relationship of a mother to her only child, saturated with trembling, fe- trembling fear and insecurity. Insecurity because one is never sure if a passenger bus will be attacked. One is never certain if a small fishing vessel in the Gulf of Aqaba will not be fired upon. A mother whose son is stationed only a few miles from her home is never sure if he will not be the vet- next victim of Arab snipers. Why is the suffering that has been accompanied the entire history of the state of Israel necessary? Because the state of Israel involves holiness. And holiness only exists if man, through sacrifice, becomes a partner with Hashem. The paradigm of this partnership is the mitzvah of bris milah. The blood and suffering allow us to merit the continued existence of Medina Yisrael. We experience this uncertain period in our history because our very insecurity is a sign that Hashem indeed desires the state of Israel. If He didn't, the birth and subsequent building of the state would have, would have proceeded smoothly. Jewish history, he writes, is a zigzag trajectory. Avram was repeatedly promised a child by Hashem and yet had to wait many long years for Yitzchak's birth, ultimately to be commanded to sacrifice him. Moshe had to wait atop a cold mountain for 40 days until Hashem revealed himself with the message of B'nai Yisrael's forgiveness. The suffering, the worry, the uncertainty is precisely what Hashem wants of us. We shouldn't have any expectation of everything being smooth, of smooth sailing. Rather, that sacrifice, that effort, that toil, that stress, that anxiety, that worry is a reflection of the holiness, of the worthiness of this mission of all that we are trying to, of all that we are trying to achieve, of all that we are trying to accomplish. Alone na'aleh, says Kalev. Let's go up. It won't be easy. It'll take effort. It'll take sacrifice. Ki yachol nuchala. Indeed, we can overcome it. So in, you know, in the words of Kalev, when he began, in the words of Kalev at the very, very beginning, was it'll take effort. It takes sacrifice. It's not easy. Shavuos, we had our Aliyah reception for the families from Boca who are making Aliyah this year. And as we always say and promote, while there are legitimate reasons not to live in Israel, there are no legitimate reasons not to struggle with, not to plan, not if, but when we will go. We all belong and we all should be there. And though it will take sacrifice, it's not easy. Less sacrifice than it ever did, but still not easy to leave one's comfort zone to make that transition. That was what Kalev said. Just like he said to the Maragam, Alona Allah, we could do it. Aliyah. We've got it. We've got it. Because things that are worth it are worth sacrificing for. Holiness is the result of that sacrifice and that effort. And one should never have had any expectation of anything in the opposite direction. That would have been a terribly unfair expectation. Chavetz Chaim has a different interpretation of what's going on here in this entire story. And it's worth sharing this insight of the Chavetz Chaim. 
He asked in Shmir Saloshan, the second Chelak, and I couldn't find it in the Chavetz Chaim Torah, but I understand it's there too, maybe in another edition. The Chavetz Chaim wonders the following. We don't have time to read it inside, so take my word for it. Of these 12 spies who go in, only Yoshua and Kalev remain loyal. Only they stay true to Hashem and trust and have faith in Him that if He says we're going in, we're going in and there's not going to be a problem. But the Chavetz Chaim has a number of questions. Chavetz Chaim asks about Kalev. Number one, we know that Moshe added the letter Yud to Yehoshua's name. He went from Hoshea to Yehoshua. Why, why didn't he do something for Kalev? So we know that Moshe davened Hashem save him from the plan of the spies. Why didn't he daven for Kalev? Why did Moshe feel compelled to daven for Yehoshua, but not for Kalev? Kalev goes to Hebron. He comes up in the south, because we know that Harot Zalachim Yadrim, you go live in South Florida, in Boca Raton. If you want wisdom, you turn to the south. So he went up from the south, and he came into Hebron. He went to go visit the graves. Kalev went to Hebron to daven. So why didn't Yehoshua go with, with uh, Kalev to Hebron? So both questions. Why didn't Moshe daven for Kalev, only Yehoshua? And why didn't Yehoshua go with Kalev to Hebron? And finally, the Chavetz Chaim notes, Hashem praises Kalev. Later, he says that Kalev has a different spirit, a different ruach, and he followed me. He has a different ruach. Perak Yudalad, Pasuk Chavdalad. Yudalad, Chavdalad. Hashem himself testifies about Kalev and says, V'avdi Kalev, Ekev Haisa Ruach Acheres Imo. Ah, as per my son, as per my servant, Kalev, he had a Ruach Acheres Imo. He had a different spirit with him. And it filled him to follow me. I'm bringing him into the land, and his progeny, his offspring, will inherit the land. Why is Kalif singled out? So these are the questions. Number one, the Chavetz Chaim wonders. Moshe davens for Yeshua and gives him the letter Yud. Parenthetically, we're not going to address it today, but if you paid attention to Chumash, you know back in Parshas Beshalach, when Yehoshua fights Amalek, Moshe calls him Yehoshua then. He already had the Yud in his name all the way back to the battle with Amalek, so it doesn't seem accurate that the letter Yud was first added to his name here, but let's go with it for a moment. Moshe davens for Yoshua, why didn't he daven for Kalev? He adds the letter Yoshua, Yud to Yoshua's name, why didn't he change Kalev's name? Kalev goes to Hebron to daven at Maras, excuse me, Hamach Pela, why didn't he take Yoshua with him to daven there? And lastly, why is Kalev the only one singled out by Hashem as having this Ruach Acheras, this different spirit that he had? So Chavetz Chaim says the following, he says, when it comes to spiritual growth, and you can argue when it comes to leadership, there are two parallel paths. There are two legitimate approaches when a person is facing the danger of being harmed, being influenced by negative surroundings, by being influenced by the negative voice within ourselves. One way is to openly resist. One way is to stand up and confront and shout down and speak the truth and be very uh, open and aggressive and confront that element that's seeking to harm, seeking to sabotage. The other, says the Chavetz Chaim, is to be more strategic, to be quiet, and even to pretend that you agree. And then when they come to publicize what they're doing, when they come to really strike, that's when you reveal who you are and that you are opposed. So there's two methods. One is to be oppositional to begin with, confrontational to begin with, to take on and try to take down the force that threatens. Or the other is to go along with the force for now to quietly look like and sound like you are agreeing, and only at the moment it's going to strike, that's when you stand up. There's an advantage and disadvantage to both approaches, writes the Chavetz Chaim. The first approach has a risk that when you uh, openly and directly and immediately confront that which threatens you, you're in danger. It might then escalate, and it then might negatively impact you. However, it has the advantage that it's unlikely you're going to negatively be influenced by... um, to go along with something. So if there's a group of people trying to seduce you or recruit you to do something wrong, if you get up confrontationally and you say, this is wrong, I want no part of it, you people are all wrong, then it's unlikely you'll be influenced and affected by it, but you're in danger. When you call people out, when you confront them, they might harm you. The second approach, right, the Chavetz Chaim has the advantage that you're not going to be harmed. You look like you're going along. You look like you're part of that group. However, it has the risk that maybe you will be influenced. It has the risk that maybe you will be corrupted and that ultimately you may not rise to the occasion to take it on. Chavetz Chaim says, Moshe understood, Moshe prophetically knew with his great wisdom. Moshe understood that Yoshua belonged to the first approach, that Yoshua operated in the first manner, that he would openly oppose the spies, 
that Yeshua would be confrontational. He also knew that Kalev was more predisposed to work in the second methodology, that he would hide his beliefs, that he would look like he was going along, that he would act like he was on their side, and only when they would rise would he rise to the, to the occasion to confront them. Says the Chavetz Chaim, knowing and understanding there are two of these methods, and knowing the risks and the advantages of both, and knowing that Moshe understood which one Yoshua and which one Kali were predisposed towards, can answer all of our questions. Why did Moshe only daven for Yoshua and change his name but not Kalev? Moshe understood that the tefillah was for Yoshua's physical safety. Kalev's physical safety would never be in danger because he wasn't revealing that he was oppositional. But Yoshua, who was taking the opposing perspective, was in danger. So Moshe davens for him. When the spies, however, reach the land, Kalev realizes their wicked plans. Kalev realizes that they're going to come back and try to undermine and compromise the entire mission. And he then decides to take the second approach. He blends in, he hides, he acts like a spy, not with them, but almost like he's a spy against them. So he needed special siyata deshmaya to complete that mission, to go undercover. There are heroic, heroic, heroic members of the IDF who go into very, very dangerous neighborhoods, territories, befriend uh, terrorists, get inside. We all know Eli Cohen, whose body, please God, should be returned to us. Um, the risks that he took going into Syria and the impact it made uh, on the Jewish people and protecting the north of Israel and others until this very day. That needs tremendous siyat deshmaya. It needs divine intervention and protection. And therefore he went to Hebron to go daven. Yoshua, in contrast, didn't need that because he was immediately confronting. So the final question was, why did he have a ruach acheres? Chavetz Chaim says, based on this Rashi, it means Kalif had two spirits. He had two ways of behaving, one in speech and one in heart. He knew that if he agreed with the spies, they allowed him to speak to the people. They thought he was going to support their arguments, and then he pulls brilliantly the switcheroo. They thought that he would speak and be an advocate on their behalf. They thought he would speak as their spokesperson, and the last moment, he brilliantly, brilliantly switches things around, and when he's given the microphone, when he's given the platform, he uses it at the opportunity not to go along with them and not to advance their mistaken notions and misconceptions, but rather to confront them. So you see that Calvin Yoshua epitomized two approaches to how to confront the threats that challenge us, to surviving when we have miraglam around us, negative, dangerous forces in our own lives, that we can take both approaches, each has a risk and each has an advantage, and we have to figure out, right, to the Chavetz Chaim, the one that works for us. But I want to share with you now a very powerful and very beautiful insight of the Eish Kodesh on these words. Kalev confronts, he speaks up, he speaks out, and he says, Alo na'ale, let's go, we've got this, let's go. And we asked and we said, but I don't understand what's going on over here. The Miraglim, they gave facts, they gave data, they gave what seems like an accurate report. Kalev interrupts them by screaming, Alo na'ale, enough with the information, enough with the report, let's go. What's the alo na'ale? Where is that coming from and why is he saying that? Now to understand the Eish Kodesh, the Helega Piazetzner, Kalanamas Kaman Shapiro of Piazetzna, Hashem Yikom Damo, Zechetzalik Levracha, Schusiyagen Aleinu. The Helega Piazetzna was murdered by the Nazis after losing his family. He was an extraordinary, extraordinary individual. We presented about his life in the people of the book. You can listen online. So his Eish Kodesh, which is a collection of the sermons he gave in, in the um, Warsaw Ghetto, can't even begin to imagine. It's hard enough to get up and give sermons to inspire ourselves and inspire others on an ordinary, during ordinary times. To do it during the, the ghetto, people were being murdered, a genocide, a systematic attempt to exterminate our people, and to get up and find messages of hope and optimism and faith to try to inspire. He wrote down his uh, notes. He scribbled notes from the sermons he gave. He buried them in canisters underneath the Warsaw Ghetto, and they were included in the Oinig Shabbos archives, Two of the three canisters were uh, uncovered. Third has not yet been recovered. That included many, many, many writings beyond just the Piazetna's writings. It's a beautiful documentary that came out a couple years ago about the Oinig Shabbos archives, how the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto, um, thinking or not believing that they would necessarily survive, but wanting to chronicle, wanting to memorialize what they were going through, collected all these records and buried them. And again, we have two out of the three canisters. Uh, the third canister we don't have. So... The Ish Kodesh, these uh, sermons were expanded upon. They were corrected, they were expanded upon, and so on. But a great contribution was done by uh, my friend, Dr. Henry Abramson of Turo University, of Turo College, when he published a wonderful, wonderful book 
um, that's called Torah from the Years of Wrath, 1939 to 1943, the historical context of the Ish Kodesh. We've quoted it before, where he takes these drushes that the Piazesner gave in the Warsaw Ghetto, and he says, in order to really appreciate their depth, their profundity, their courage, you need to know historically what was taking, ba- taking place in the backdrop. You see, the, the Piazetzner Rebbe, when he gave these drushes, he never explicitly referenced what was happening. He didn't talk about concentration camps or crematoria. He didn't talk about gas chambers. He didn't talk about Nazis and murderers. He didn't talk about the ghetto. He, he, he stuck uh, strictly with the Parsha and with the message that he was trying to draw from it. But he didn't provide the historical context. It seems that, that was a conscious decision he was making not to remind the people explicitly what they were going through, but the implicit message. So Dr. Abramson gave us the great uh, gift of providing us the historical background. So here's the historical background he writes to this drusha, Parsha Shlach, Shnas Tavshin, 1940. This was the drusha that the Piazetzner gave in the Warsaw Ghetto in 1940. What was happening there? So writes Dr. Abrams, the Hasidim of the Piazetzner Rebbe who gathered for Shalashudas in his base medrash on 5 Zjelna Street in Warsaw must have been unusually somber that fateful June 1940 afternoon. Over the previous week, ominous news had filtered into the ghetto. France had fallen to the powerful Nazi armed forces. With the collapse of this major Western power, Hitler was nearing his high-water mark of European domination, occupying the continent from the English Channel to the borders of the Soviet Union. Many in the ghetto had hoped that France would be able to halt the advance of German forces. But in the summer of 1940, it looked as if the Thousand-Year Reich was ever closer to becoming a reality. Germany appeared invincible. The Rebbe, by contrast, was undaunted. Taking his cue from the weekly Parsha, he fearlessly delivered a bold, undiluted message of courage. His starting point was Kalev's call to action, exhorting the Jewish people once a slave nation to begin the conquest of Israel. Contradicting the fearful report of the other spies, who bemoaned the military odds facing the Israelites were hopeless, Kalev and Yeshua remained steadfast in their faith and in their divine promise. And here's what he writes in his Eish Kodesh. This is the drasha of the Heilig Piazetzna. Alo na'ala v'yarashin v'asa Says the Piazetzner, what an abrupt response. What a strange, bizarre response. What an uncompelling response. The Maraglim said, here's compelling evidence. Here's data. They're fortified cities. They have strongholds. They're giants. They have military superiority over us. What they reported was factual. And Kalev does not confront their facts. Kalev doesn't challenge that they're wrong. He just says, Alo He's a total disregard. He ignores everything they said. And he responds, Sasam. He just simply says, Alo So says the Rebbe, you know why? Listen carefully, my friends. Listen to the words of the Piazetna. 1940, June 1940. The Nazis are marching across Europe. They're taking the continent and they seem they're invincible. And everybody else is giving up hope. Everybody else is filled with despair. Everybody else is, uh, is despondent. But not the Piazetzna Rebbe. In that Warsaw Ghetto, he turns to those Jews, the skeletons of Jews, and he turns to them and he says, This is the Amuna of a Jew. Not only when the Jew sees the path of how they're going to uh, persevere, how they're going to be saved. A Jew has to live with a level of faith that is supernatural. It can't just operate within the natural world. It can't just be, okay, we're going to have a meeting, we'll sit in a boardroom, we'll have a whiteboard, we'll come up with a plan. Oh, only when we can see a path forward. Only when we can see a path out. Only when we can, the natural order, make sense or strategically come up with a plan. That's when we trust in God. That's not the way a Jew has to live. Even or especially when a Jew sees no way out and no path forward and nothing makes sense and nothing within the natural world should enable or allow salvation. Nevertheless, Yamin Bashem one has to have all faith, unconditional faith in God, that He's capable of anything, even when we can't see or imagine or dream of a way out. In the moment it seems most hopeless, in the moment it seems most helpless, 
in the moment we're most despondent, in the moment we're tempted to have the greatest despair, is when we should have the greatest faith. That's when we should stop. Stop looking for solutions. Stop exploring ways out. Stop trying to understand how in the natural order it can still happen. Because the more you study, the more you dissect, the more you strategize, and the less solutions you find, the less faith you'll have. And what's going to happen? The less faith you have, the less merit you'll earn to be saved. Person in those moments has to say it's all truth. It's true. Cities are fortified. It's true. The people are giants. It's true. They have a military superiority. It's true. But nevertheless, even with all those truths, we're not taking on the truths. We're not challenging or undermining the truths. Even with all those truths, nothing is beyond Hashem. Alo na'ale, says Kalev to the people in that moment. Says the Piazetzna to the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto in that moment. Alo na'ale, it's all true. The odds are against us. And in the natural world, in the natural order, there is no way out. It's all true. Let's not try to seek or, or, or perceive or understand. In that moment, if we can put our unbridled faith in Hashem, if we can put our irrational faith in Hashem, even in that moment, then we will hasten the salvation, we'll hasten the redemption. That redemption never came for the Piazetna, and undoubtedly for countless other Jews who listened to his message of hope that day, but it did happen collectively to our people. That Nazi march against Europe did come to a halt, and there was opposition confrontation, and there was liberation, and shortly after was the founding of a state of Israel, as we discussed earlier. And today the Jewish people thrive in the land of Israel and around the world. The message of the Piazetna resonates, it resounds, it continues to echo in our ears. It was the message of Kalev, Alona Aleh. I'm not even going to take on what you're saying. I'm not going to try to challenge it. I'm not going to try to explain why it's wrong. I'm not going to debate it because it doesn't matter. Even if in the natural order there is no explanation, even if in the natural order all there is is hopelessness and despair, that's when we dig deeper. That's when we lean in further and closer. That's when we put even more trust in Hashem because that's what we need. That's what will hasten the redemption. Again, even more powerful to understand the message of the Piazetna against the backdrop of what was happening in Europe, what was happening in the Warsaw Ghetto at that time. If he could find the courage, the strength, the resiliency to give that message then, then we can listen to it and continue to hear it and continue to feel it in our time. Okay, moving right along. Yud Gimel Lamed Beis. When they want to describe negatively the land, what do they say? The spies come back and they say, it is a land that consumes the people inside of it. It consumes the people inside of it. What does that mean, it consumes the people inside of it? So, the Ishtamid Rav Druk says the following. The Gemara says, Rashi quotes, Chazal, Gemara and Sota, the spies come back and they say, everywhere we went in Israel on this mission, wherever we went, we saw people burying dead. Now the truth is, God made a kind deed for the people. Everyone in Israel was so consumed, Canaan at the time, by burying their dead, they didn't notice the spies. Therefore the spies' cover was not blown they were never endangered because everyone was so occupied and preoccupied with burying their dead. However, points out Rav Druk, the spies came back and they didn't see it as a good. They only saw the bad. They said, Eretz Ocheles Yoshvehahi. So many funerals, so many graves, so many cemeteries, so many burials, so much mourning. This is a land that eats people alive. This is a land that's killing people off. All they came back was seeing the negative. They could have recognized the positive. They could have recognized the positive. And that was their mistake. We won't read it inside because I have many more ideas and very little time left. But Rav Druk says, this is the choice that we have. We could live life and even that which appears negative, we can put our trust in Hashem that He's doing it with a plan, that He's choreographing our lives, that there's nothing random or chance, but there's a meaning to it all. Or we can try to interpret it. We may get it wrong. And in interpreting it, we sabotage and we undermine our own success. These spies should have come back on understanding Wow, 
Hashem wants our mission to succeed so much that he preoccupied the inhabitants of the land with funerals so they wouldn't notice us. Instead, they come back, Eretz Ochelos Yoshveahi. We should be very, very, very careful not to draw our own conclusions because we could easily be mistaken. And when we are mistaken and we look at something that really is for our good and we interpret it as being negative and for our bad, then we undermine our mission in life. We undermine our very success in life. And what a mistake that is. Perak Yud Gimel, Pasuk, Lamed Gimel. Yud Gimel, Lamed Gimel. Torah tells us that we saw the giants there and we appeared to them like, like grasshoppers. We were like grasshoppers in our eyes, and we so we were in their eyes. There's a very famous Kotzker Rebbe. Kotzker says, how do we know how they, we appeared in their eyes? That's how we appeared in our eyes, and so we appeared in their eyes. Soloveitchik has a long entry on this in his Chumash, and he basically says there's two types of slavery. The first is juridic, a political condition. Man is chattel, private property, kinyin kaspo, an object belonging to an owner. First type of being enslaved is physically being in bondage to another. But there's a second type of slavery, not juridic, but typological, a mental state of servility rather than a physical imposed enslavement. Second type of enslavement is a slave mentality. It's a victim mentality. There's the physical bondage, the physical slavery, and then there is the slave mentality, the slave attitude. When we got out of Egypt, Hashem liberated us and He freed us from the physical bondage. But you see from the sentence, says the Rav, that we continue to suffer from the slave mentality. Okay, maybe in our own eyes we know what we looked like. We were grasshoppers in our own lives compared to them. They were giants. How do we know how we appeared in their eyes? So Soloveitchik writes, this is what the Kutzker says too, you see that when a person has an inferiority complex, when you have a slave mentality, when you're insecure, when you lack self-confidence, you project onto others. They couldn't possibly know what the Nephilim thought of them. However, when a person lives with insecurity and inferiority, they project, they imagine, they assume what others think of them. And that is a form of slavery. We need to liberate ourselves from that slavery. So Hashem liberated us from the physical bondage of Egypt when we left, but we still had a slave mentality. We still have an inferiority complex. We still lack self-esteem and self-confidence. And that we need to liberate ourselves. That's the bracha we say in the Haggadah of gratitude from the redemption. And we shall chant unto you a new hymn, a shira chadasha, about our redemption and the liberation of our soul. Asher Ga'alon, in the bracha, before we eat the meal, we say in the second cup, we say about our redemption, about our ge'ula, and about the liberation of our soul, about our soul. Because those are the two types of freedom we need, the juridic and the typological. We need freedom from the physical enslavement, and we need freedom from the slave mentality, freedom from the inferiority complex that too many people suffer from. The, uh, this Kotzker, you see from here also, a very powerful message of this Kotzker, they say. There's a beautiful sefer that uh, someone got me called Aaron Ha'edus. Aaron, ha- Aaron Ha'edus. It's a collection of the sikhas of Elazar and Misen Rubin Shlita. And in here he quotes the Degemach and Ephraim. When Kosh Baruch said to Moshe Rabbeinu before Matan Torah, Ish lo yale imach, she'afachad lo yale b'mach shavasecha klal. When he said to Moshe, climb on top of the mountain and no one should climb up with you, what he meant was, you shouldn't have anyone else in your head. Don't worry what other people think about you. Don't imagine, don't project, don't rent space to others in your head. They, they don't pay you nearly enough. And so, Ish lo yale imach, don't take someone else up with you. What other people think about me is not my problem. I wrote an article a few months ago. What other people think about me is not my problem. That's the mentality, the attitude we're supposed to have. We believe in Maris Ayin. We believe that we have to be careful how we behave, not to mislead people. But what other people think about me is not my business. It's none of my business. What other people think about me is none of my business. Ish lo yale imach. The Gra writes in Brachos Davdalad, Ikara chasidus shlo yizbayesh mne odom b'mila d'shmaya. Don't worry what other people think about you. If you believe you're doing the right thing and you believe the Ribbono Shalom thinks you're doing the right thing. And that's what the Bashem Tov says on the Hanit Tribe Bet Chaniyam Muskar Mesachas Tainus. And the Rebbe Kodesh of Kotsk, we just quoted this Kotsk Rebbe. Zel Chait, Kelo Hashem Yisbarach Shalach Uscha, Hashem sent you to the land of Israel. Lama Targish Kechagav. Why do you feel like a grasshopper? Who told you? Hashem says you're great. Hashem says, you're a giant in my eyes. Hashem says, I have a giant mission and a giant plan for you to go do. And you decided that you appear like a grasshopper in the eyes of others? 
But isn't it true? These are giants. Wasn't it true that these mere mortal humans were like grasshoppers in the eyes of the giants? So he writes, You know what the chait was? What do you care how you appear to them and what they're saying about you? What other people say about you is none of your business. What do you care? That was the chait. Maybe it's true that's what they were saying. That wasn't the chait repeating what they were saying. The chait was, why are you paying attention? What other people think about you or say about you is none of your business. That is the attitude here of the Torah. Got about halfway through what I wanted to talk about. Halfway through. Beautiful interpretation of the mitzvah of Chala, Tzitzis, why the punishment was Yom Lashana, Salach Kidvarecha, how do we earn forgiveness? Kalev says the land is Ma'od Ma'od, is very, very good. Where do you see the language of Ma'od Ma'od in Chazal? Oh, halfway through. Tempted to do another hour, but I'm going to quit while we're behind. So, thank you for learning with me. Thank you to our sponsors. We continue tomorrow morning with 10 minutes of meeting with Sosha Sharon at 8.15, living with Amuna at 8.45. Tomorrow night, 9 p.m., we're going behind the Bima with Dr. Leah Golden, the mother of Hadar Golden. Hadar Golden and Oron, uh, his friend, the two bodies, continue to be held illegally, unjustly by Hamas. Negotiations are back underway, many years, unfortunately, still later, to recover their bodies. They are missing in action. Even if they're no longer alive, they were murdered by Hamas terrorists. And we will speak to uh, Hadar Golden's mother, Leah Golden, tomorrow night at Mahanda Bima, 9 p.m. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.